0: Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive function. This podcast is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem-solving, emotional balance, and independence. So join us as we explore executive function and the science of learning. And now, here's your host, the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. We talk about everything related to executive function, self-management, self-control, self-regulation, how to connect to our inner selves to produce a better future self and how to change our ways so that our future self benefits. And one of the interesting topics that's very close to my heart is our social skills. You know, we are all wired to be social, and socializing and connecting depends on a lot of executive function skills, particularly the concept of theory of mind or perspective taking, uh, cognitive and affective flexibility, our ability to empathize and sympathize with others, and those things collectively help us regulate ourselves uh, in the complex social world. Uh, but I don't know about you, but have you ever been bullied or have you when you were younger, particularly during, um, you know, middle school and high school years, uh, were you ever subjected to torment uh, by your peers? And um, I have some traumatic experiences. Uh, I would like to think that I was a popular girl, but I think now that I look like, I think my self-esteem was better than my popularity. So (laughs) I wasn't popular, Um, but I I was kind of a leader, but leader amongst the losers. And I hate to say that, but I was well liked by certain peers who were not included by anybody and because I was inclusive, but it also kind of reduced my social creds. And that was very annoying because all of them would latch on to me. But there was definitely the most popular girl in the school or in my grade was um, quite um, quite mean to me. And one particular um, thing I remember was Uh, My mother, who was a great seamstress, and when we went to 10th grade or 11th and 12th, um, it was K-12, to and we in India, you have matriculation in 10th, and then it's considered, you know, mini college, but we were allowed to not wear uniforms. And then my mother sewed this dress, Uh, it was an Indian dress, and uh, uh, it literally, I cannot translate this, but it kind of semi-translates into this idea that it's uh, a a uh, sack of potatoes <laughs> so the dress was a straight i was very very skinny and and tall indian tall and i was wear i would wear that dress and this girl started rumors to call me a uh, a sack and obviously not in a flattering way and eventually that was written on my backpack and on my uh you know uh many places let me say unsavory ways and that I could never shake it off until I left for college. And that kind of traumatized me in a way. So as I think about our today's guest, we definitely want to talk about these very uh, delicate moments in our lives where our social value either is upgraded or degraded by our peers and their own empathy, or lack thereof can determine our savory or unsavory experiences. So we all know that empathy facilitates pro-social behaviors and promotes social understanding. Uh, but one of the vital ingredients for social and interpersonal success is these highly cultivated social skills. But all kids don't bring the same level of emotional bandwidth. Uh, and with that comes the challenge of handling them particularly if they're your contemporaries. Uh, And in that young mind, we may be either devastated by their behavior or we may be the one causing devastation to them. And then fast forward, uh, it's not too often that you suddenly a non-bully person becomes a wonderfully divine person. So no, there are some traits. We have contemporaries and our peers as adults who also behave this way. So the question is, why do people behave this way? And what can we do? Because executive function is also about creating connections, creating communities where we actually are pursuing collective goals and managing our emotions and our social and cognitive abilities so that we all can live in a harmonious way. Well, with that, it's a great pleasure and honor to invite Dr. Monica Marcy. She's a graduate uh, from the University of New Orleans, and she has a PhD in applied developmental psychology. She's a, she's currently an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Iowa State University and is the director of the Mercy Aggression and Delinquency Lab. Kind of fun acronym is MADLAB, like MADLIB. Uh, and she um, her research is generally focused on risk factors for antisocial behaviors in children, adolescent, and emerging does So many conversations to be had about that. And uh, her topic um, topics of interest include the forms of uh, functions of aggression, bullying, and victimization, dark triads, callous, unemotional traits. And I'm very interested in uh, knowing a little bit more about these callous, unemotional traits uh, and ultimately emotional dysregulation, social dysregulation, and social cognitive risk factors. So such a pleasure to invite you to the podcast. How are you, Monica?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you for having me.
0: So all the saga that I described, is this something, (laughs) was I abnormal to be subjected to the torment of my peers, or is it quite common uh, to experience uh, this um, being ostracized or slightly picked on? Uh, So maybe you can start talking to us first about Aggression. Uh, so we talk about pro-social behaviors all the time, which is being collaborative and and kind and empathic. So what is pro-social and antisocial behaviors?
1: Okay, um, so you're right. Pro-social behavior is geared towards um, engaging socially with others, and um, antisocial behavior is usually geared towards harm. And that's how we define aggression. So aggression tends to be defined as the intent to harm another person, and this can be done in a number of different ways. Um, you were describing what we call relational aggression, which is aggression that's geared towards harming someone's reputation or their social relationships, um, friendships, and it can really be devastating to to people. Um, And I think it's a lot more common than we think.
0: You know, it's so interesting that you described the distinction between this physical harm, which is actually scratching somebody's face, which I have never done and nobody ever done that. But mostly, I've had a lot of encounters with relational aggression. And so it is, is is it safe to think that if I'm hurt, I'm likely to cause uh, hurt through aggression? Or do some people tend to aggress more? or unprovoked way than the others?
1: Um, I'm glad you asked that because that's one of my uh, main interests actually is looking at that distinction. So between provoked and unprovoked aggression, because um, there are many people who will engage in aggression if they're provoked. So if you you know, bump into them or push them, they might push you back. Um, but there's a smaller percentage of people who will also engage in unprovoked aggression and it's more proactive in nature so it's it's goal oriented so usually um, if you're talking about physical aggression it could be the classic bully who wants to steal your lunch money so you mm-hmm. know pushes you down takes your money um, that that's an instrumental goal that they've reached by taking your your money um, if you're talking about relational aggression it could be, you know, knocking you down a few pegs on the social hierarchy by starting a malicious rumor to, you know, prevent people from befriending you. So it's, there are, that is a much less common form of aggression, but it tends to be an indicator of severity of aggression.
0: And so is, uh, you know, I had Ryan Martin, uh, who is an anger researcher and, and you know, ha- it was a wonderful to understand this premise of anger and particularly goal blockage. You know, you have a goal and then uh, and then but also you have some preconditions, your internal state prior to somebody blocks your goal. And and so when I think about this, particularly these um things that you study about social aggression, um, what are the goals people are trying to pursue that they feel their goals are blocked when they aggress? So, uh, you know, I want to speak and if I'm not allowed, then I'm going to kind of insult somebody, right? Uh, or if I see somebody's popular and my goal, I certainly feel jealous and uh, not equal um, uh, compared to this better looking person. Is that is that fair to think that way? What are the goals that are getting blocked? <laughs>
1: Uh, there, yeah, there are a number of goals that I think uh, aggressors or bullies have. I th- one, as I said, you can categor- categorize some of them as, as instrumental goals. So um, they want to get something from you. So maybe they want to steal your best friend. They want that person for their own, you know, social circle, and they don't want you to be a part of it. Um, you know, that's something that uh, could be achieved by like I said, starting rumors or, um, social exclusion, you know, leaving you out of activities and inviting everyone else, but you, you know, things like that. Um, I, I, a lot of the research suggests that the goal of social or relational aggression is to increase your own social status. So Hmm. whatever way that you can do that, you know, it, it could be any number of different things, um, with more anger, related aggression, which we call reactive, like it's a reaction against something that's provoked, that's less goal oriented. It's much more impulsive in the moment. It's associated with hostility and anger and a number of different cognitive biases as well.
0: So wh- uh, what is the relationship between, um, uh, executive function and aggression or particularly this relational, uh, aggression?
1: Well, um, There are a lot of interesting studies out there that look at um, attention and the role of attention and aggression, particularly uh, what we call attentional bias. So what do you pay attention to when you're in a social situation? Do you pay attention to things? Do you perseverate on things that are potentially threatening? And are those things um, you are they actually threatening to you? Are you over attending to something that's ambiguous that you know could be a threat? Um, people who are aggressive tend to make a number of errors in in their interpretation Processing. of situations, right? And they tend to over focus on what they consider threat, even if others would consider that an, an ambiguous situation.
0: Hmm. So in in psychology, that's called uh, appraisal, right? Like ability to evaluate the potency of a situation i guess
1: right exactly so it's it's part of social information processing so you go into a social situation and you first like you said you start appraising the situation by noting and attending to different stimuli in the environment and if you have um, maybe deficits in you know your attention your focus um, that are related to these biases then you may be paying more attention to things that are really not relevant or threatening, but to you, they are very salient.
0: You know, it's, it reminds me of the taxi driver. You're talking to me, you know, <laughs> feeling constantly that even the, a, a, a glance is almost a stare or a stare is kind of judgy, um, you know, look <laughs>
1: at the person. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Um, we in the, in the research, we call that a hostile attribution bias. So you go yeah. into a situation and there may be an ambiguous, um, you know, someone accidentally knocked your your books off your desk and you think they did it on purpose, so you react aggressively. And people who have that bias, they do tend to be overly aggressive. So do we have
0: any particular psychological characteristics or temperament versus cognitive profile of these people who are aggressed upon versus aggressors? Um, what are your findings in that?
1: great question um, we tend to find that uh, if you look at people who are aggressors and they they're not victimized you know there there are people who are kind of at the top of the hierarchy so they're not they're not victims they are the bullies um, that's that's not as common as to have people who are both aggressors and victims there, t- there tends to be a cycle of um, The people who are both aggressors and victims tend to have more uh, depression and anxiety, more loneliness, um, other psychological problems or symptoms. Um, People who are victims also tend to be very anxious um, and they may they may have awkward social skills um, or lack, you know, lack social development Mm. of their, you know, that matches their peers. so there are some differences between people who are just straight aggressors and people who are also victimized um but it's not it's not super clear cut you know because they oftentimes people are in both of those roles. You know in my
0: uh, clinical work I've seen very interesting and maybe I'm more biased because you know confirmation bias here but um a, a two particular populations that I see uh you know children uh, and young adults with ADHD diagnosis, and children and young adults with autism spectrum, or particularly the milder uh, Asperger's traits. And I always see the those with Asperger's tend to get bullied a lot, uh, because they're missing on social cues, they are not attentive, uh, they're also not seeing an onslaught of aggression, <laughs> you know, they're not reading the the room, so to speak, and then I see the ADHD. They are often the aggressors, and I don't mean uh, mostly. This is a hyperactive um, even subset, but they tend to be the ones who speak impulsively, insult uh, unthoughtfully. They are um, very quick to reveal a secret and and socially cause shame to other people or reduce their social capital by. Oopsies. <laughs> so do, do you see similar, um, or is this clinical hunch, uh, validated?
1: Yes, I definitely think that you're onto something there. It's, it's, so with, with children with ADHD, you know, they have a lack of impulse control. Like you said, they blurt out inappropriate things. They, they can't wait their turn. Um, they feel like they need it now, you know, they don't delay gratification well. And so, it may so they they that those temperament traits are more associated with difficult behaviors like aggression. So you would see, um, like you said, impulse control problems being one of the main predictors of this type of hostile, reactive aggression, um, and it's very thoughtless in a lot of cases. It's not right; it just kind of comes out. Um, and with with someone on autism spectrum, uh, that would be. Like you said, a lack of awareness of social cues and more anxiety appearing, right? Or so, you know, they may they may just not fit in to social groups and don't even care if they do. And people think they're awkward, and and so they um, they're much less likely to be aggressors. They're much more likely to be victimized. But like you said, not necessarily even know why or even pick up on it um, because they don't necessarily pick up on those cues in general.
0: You know, I had a very interesting uh, client once, and in my practice, two clients, but they didn't know they were both seeing me, but one was the bully and one was being bullied by the bully. (laughs) And it was such an interesting opportunity for me because I could make an impact teaching one how to stand up for yourself and teaching the second to stand down, so to speak. <laughs> but one thing that was very interesting to me uh, that um, from the, uh, as I observed the bully, one, there was self-focus. There was a lot of hyper um, in self-engulfed thoughts, you know, am I benefiting? Am I propelling my agenda? Um, and general disregard for this collaborative big picture thinking about the needs of others, um, it wasn't even necessarily motivated by harm or personal gain by hurting, but there was no regard for any hurt that would be, it's it's like just, you know, using um, a torch to, you know, make a flambe, but you're also burning the house down and you're like, oh, it's not my house, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was very intrigued by this uh, general uh, disregard, this callousness. Uh, And I'm very curious, as um, I came across your work and Dr. Frick's work about this, um, you know, callous unemotional traits. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? And is that uh, psychopathy?
1: Sure. So callous unemotional traits research kind of started as a downward extension of psychopathy research in adulthood. So we know that Individuals who are psychopathic lack empathy. They, like you said, they have a general disregard for harm, um, and they don't feel guilt when they or remorse when they do something wrong. And this was applied to the most severe criminal offenders, right? So, but then people started to notice that children also would show some <laughs> of these traits, and that's where this concept of callous and unemotional traits was born. Um, it describes just a general lack of concern for even doing well in school or friendships or, um, you know, other people's feelings, there could be active maliciousness associated with it. And sometimes Mm. there is, um, but it tends to, it tends to be studied in conjunction with conduct disorder. So children who are, um, aggressive and who engage in delinquent behavior, um, who are also callous and unemotional are going to show a greater severity of symptoms. They're going to be harder to treat because they don't respond to things like anger management. So it's, it's, I'm not angry when I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm just doing it to reach a goal or thoughtlessly, you know, um, engaging in this behavior without any emotion attached to it. So you can't really intervene with the emotion because it's not, it's not there.
0: And so is there, uh, is there a difference between uh, when this callousness, uh, which is more, uh, you know, measurable, as you're saying, uh, and because I've I've worked with uh, several families where I see these behaviors in the son or daughters, and then I see them in the parents, uh, one of the parents. And, and there's just generally like, lack of concern, you know, lack of, uh, like, not deeply emotional people. Um, So is there some connection? Is there a genetic component to this? And does this kind of, uh, when somebody exhibits these traits in childhood, is there, um, should our alarm bells be going off in our heads?
1: Yes, to both of those. So they are, there is a strong genetic component. So if you look at twin studies, which are the gold standard for studying genetic effects, you do find that these traits are heritable. And so they um, can be passed down or common among family members. Um, but there's, there's also another pathway, if you will, to developing these traits Um, which is via traumatic experiences. So um, if you think about callousness as kind of emotional numbing, that's also associated with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, So there are two kind of what we think of as pathways to these, to developing these one, you're kind of born with this um, genetic predisposition and then the parenting and the environment that you receive compound that, um, you know, that lack of emotion, that, that, Uh, difficulty and it tends to be more stable if you, if you, you know, if it's, if it's following Mm -hmm. that pathway um, versus consistent traumatic exposure to abuse or other experiences like that, that can over time lead to numbing that looks like callous and unemotional traits. Um, And I think you had another, a second part to the question. Oh, you asked whether it was stable into adulthood and whether it should be ringing alarm bells, and it, it definitely should because it does predict delinquent behavior, aggressive behavior, um, and just a general pattern of, of dysfunction. Uh, and it's it's stable, and you know it has shown that it is stable across um, many individuals into their adulthood years so this is a little bit of a sidebar conversation from
0: um experience so um and i'm curious what do you think of this but i've seen uh, some people who are in my friend circles or general social you have encountered where people just stick to things like a dog who catches the, you know, pants, leg of pant or something. And so they go to the uh, extent of filing a complaint or making a federal case out of everything, or they actually will pursue it till death and they will kind of miss out the big picture. So it is a kind of a executive dysfunction because you're not balancing uh, priorities. You're completely hyper-focused on this idea of spite or taking revenge. Uh, But you also have this un- um uncalibrated uh, sense of justice which is favoring self you know so i've seen some of that uh, like uh, um uh we we had gone somewhere oh, with some friends um this is many years ago and there was hair uh, in the entree and so this person um we we returned the entree they not only honored you know they didn't charge they replaced the entree so everything was you know, just as our ordinary, bad, good experience, you know? No, no, no. This person went and wrote a review and then called the whatever local authority and made sure they knew there was a hair and and kind of kept refreshing the link to see if there were additional comments and then made another comment with anonymous, uh, you know, anonymous comment. And so just I felt that was like this person went bonkers, like, this doesn't sound at all reasonable. So I don't know what to make of that. But I see executive dysfunction a, in an everyday life where people are behaving in an unbalanced way. They are kind of hyper-focused, under-focused. And they particularly take this idea of um, you know, vigilante justice in their own hands, which is not even proportionate to the um, you know situational fopa. So I don't know what to make of that.
1: I've seen that too, just anecdotally um, among adults that I know who <laughs> like they won't let it won't let it go, and will take things. It, it's it does seem to be centered around a sense of um, righteousness that righteousness, they have, yes. So that they that they need to make this right that they've been treated unfairly, and that that they need to be over the top and get revenge on whoever it is that have. Treated them unfairly, um, and like you said, it is a dysfunction because it's it's a hyper focus on some outcome that they only they know what it is and you know, only they know what could <laughs> what would make what would make it right. Um, whereas for the rest of us, you know, it would be something much easier to remedy the situation. Um, but I think it's related to some cognitive biases that that they may have. Um, you know, they, they tend to blame other people a lot. So there's, there's never, it's never my fault. If anything bad happens, that that's never, ever my fault. I don't take responsibility for it. Um, and, and that's, that's like the knee jerk reaction that they have is to blame others, um, which can be a treatment target. You can work on that, you know, with cognitive therapy, but (laughs) yes. Um, but, but if, you, if you pair that with this general callousness and this kind of... It, to me, it's more like a personality disorder.
0: Hmm. That would,
1: that, that's what I see it, that. Right? So it's a personality disorder being very inflexible and rigid in your thinking and being, you know, all, all of the disorders in that category are kind of focused on, right? That inflexibility. So <laughs> yes. I think that's like the hallmark of what you're talking about.
0: And, and then I think the, uh, you know, let's kind of talk now about we live in a highly socially connected world and searchability. And at the same time, we can have some level of anonymity when we, uh, you know, kind of bark at somebody, right, uh, in this w- highly connected web uh, or social world, social media world. So the social media has given people f- the freedom to aggress and cause damage to people's reputation. Um Talk us, uh, you do, uh, um, you have a great interest in this area. So can you define what cyber aggression or cyber bullying is? And is that different than in-person bullying <laughs> or aggression?
1: That's a question that we've been interested in looking at. I've been very curious about that too. Um, so cyber aggression or cyber bullying, I think people use those terms kind of interchangeably sometimes, but it's it's still involving that harm component. Um, so aggression involves the harm component and the bullying is repeated aggression against someone who you perceive as weaker than you. So that's kind of the difference between those two things. So, um, so you could have one incidence of cyber aggression where someone posts a mean comment about you and then that, you know, that's it. But if they are repetitively stalking you, you know, doxing you doing whatever it is people do um making anonymous accounts to harass you, then it becomes bullying because it's that repetitive um it's the repetitiveness of it that really uh makes it in makes it bullying rather than just one incident. But I was curious, and we've been looking at this in our research lab as to whether they the people who engage in well, are there people who only engage in cyber bullying and don't wouldn't would never do it in person. That was one question that I had um, and I think we are finding that so some studies have found that that, that they do that those individuals do exist um, in our study we didn't find we didn't find that there were people who were only cyber bullies we found that um, if they were cyberbullying they were also reporting regular bullying they were in-person bully- bullies yeah. too <laughs> right um, and we wanted to know do they show similar personality Traits, you know, maladaptive personality traits, Um, and you know, we found some some similarities there. So I I see, but this is based on one study. So I think this is a new area that people are still looking at as to whether these two types of bullying are distinct people, or is is this just another opportunity? You know, if you're a bully, then you're just going to do it however you can, right? So this is just one more avenue that you can use. Right and doing it online, so that that's that's kind of how I think this is going to play out. You know, it's interesting. You you said that
0: I think you you kind of probably you know lots of opportunities to study this because we are the the cyber world is here to stay. And I was listening uh, to a podcast this morning uh, with a philosopher, David uh, Chalmers, and uh, his commentary on our virtual world. Uh, versus our in person world <laughs> that this sounds not crazy, but uh, what is the nature of reality and 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 to me I'm, I was very curious as I was listening to it, it it just made me think about our upcoming conversation, and I said, you know, so there is a in person world, then you have this Cyber world, then you have virtual reality where you can actually be simulation in the midst of a simulation, and you can continue to bully in the simulation too. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it sounds like very much uh, pertaining to the person's characteristics in addition to provocations that may be encountered. So, uh, so I do uh, w- uh, was wondering: is there a particular tone uh, to uh, cyber aggression? Is the is the agenda typically? A harming person's reputation or ruining people's connectivity. Um, so, is that a more than the relational aggression there, or is this all about relational aggression?
1: I, uh, well, my opinion, and so far, is that it is just another form of relational aggression, and I think as the, that the research is going to bear that out as well. Um, so, if you if you're cyber aggressing or cyber bullying usually you are trying to harm someone's reputation. There's Mm. not a whole, you know, or you're trying to scare them. I mean, it could be, you know, like threatening, invoking fear. Um, So I think there could be a couple of different goals, but it seems to be that um, a lot of the behaviors that when we study this, that people report are, you know, they're spreading a rumor, a lie about someone or releasing a picture that no, that, the, that the person other person doesn't want someone to see or you know, doing things like that, that would um, follow you around for the rest of your life because they're on the internet. And so I tend to think of it as kind of a, a subtype of relational aggression because it, you know, it really is geared towards harming a person socially. Although, as I said, I could think of a couple of other reasons why someone would do it. Um, but to me, they, it has a very similar feel to um, the agenda of someone with relational aggression or who engages in that. You
0: know, as I was uh, as you were talking, it just occurred to me. You know, when we uh, we empower uh, teens and you know uh, pre adolescents by talking about sex talk, you know, in anticipation that they are going through puberty, I wonder if we should have a special curriculum just to talk about. Uh, the idea of social connectivity or when there's face-to-face interaction is lacking. You know, we we are missing out on tone, uh, the emphasis, there's no conversational emphasis, there's no phrasing, there are no other nonverbal cues when we are dealing with this uh, in, uh, uh, what is it, impersonal interactions. Uh, and do you, what do you think uh, about its impact on our young minds that are developing Uh, because I think you and I did not grow up with this. Uh, We kind of escaped it, but I I can actually even see now as a adult, I can like just brace myself if there's a comment, like always like, Oh.
1: Right. Um, I think that there, that this virtual world that the children are living in is going to definitely have an impact on their development of social skills Potentially, their empathy development, um, because as you said, in order to feel empathy for someone, you usually need to be able to read their emotional cues when you're looking at them or talking to them, and so that's not there. That's lacking. Um, I think it remains to be seen what the overall effect is going to be. I, I don't. Um, I don't think that. I think that there are a lot of potentially negative effects. Um, and I do think that some some schools seem to be doing, attending to this, you know, and seem to be talking to kids about this. And I don't know if it's an official part of curriculum, but um, it is when children's minds are developing in their uh, their their ability to see things from another person's perspective. And they're only, you know, they're mostly taking it in via this kind of dry, you know, cold online virtual world. Um, I can see ha- how that would impact normal empathy development.
0: You know, I have a client, um, who as an adult, uh, with, um, uh, mild uh, autism and definitely has social and interpersonal difficulties. It has a robust virtual life more than <laughs> in person. And one of the behaviors, uh, that I, um, encountered or kind of noticed was, uh, lots of uh, virtual gaming and in that, uh, making friends by bribing people uh, in the game. So it's a complicated game, but anyway, you, one of, one of these games that he plays that, you know, he has a lot of weapons. So he, he was very masterful. So he collected a lot of weapons. And so when he meets people in order for them to like him, he will give freebies of his weapons. And then he will also uh, make terrible comments <laughs> to th- to those who are performing slightly poorly than he is. If there he perceives them to be competition, and so in fact he was the one um, client I would say that I had to work on this bullying, where uh, it was a very mild form of bullying and uh, like a almost weak bullying because all the <laughs> bells and whistles were not there. But there was definite intention of harming the other person's uh, uh, propelling of social status. And and so I'm wondering if there is any uh, kind of do these things go, uh, those who exhibit um, this aggression, do they exhibit uh, the capacity for social charm and manipulation? uh, So that when they want it, they kind of are able to yield what they want from people without aggression. Typical sociopath.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. That's what you're, that's what I was thinking of when you said that it's, um, they can turn on the charm. That is one of the, um, kind of associated traits with, you know, callous and emotional traits or psychopathic traits is this, um, this narcissistic, charming, right. Personality that can be (laughs) used very instrumentally when it's needed to be. And it seems very genuine um, and, but it's all just in pursuit of a goal also, I mean, you know? So yes, that, that superficial charm um, can be one of the characteristics that you would see, not necessarily of your garden variety bully or aggressor, but of a subset of people who also show the dark triad traits or the, you know, the callous and emotional traits um those are those are characteristics that define uh that we use to define those those traits uh, machiavellianism narcissism um things that are superficially um charming or or useful to the person and you know that the charm is useful to the person and they'll be able to kind of turn it on and off so i think that's yeah i think you're right about that
0: so Let's not end our podcast uh, in a hopeless way. So I'm sure there's some ways to help and support and build some of these skills because ultimately aren't they skills? Uh, socializing and and controlling impulses and a self self centered perspective can be altered uh, with by in, infusing other person's um, you know theory of mind, for example. So what are some of the things you have explored, uh, or what does the research say about? Uh, impact of some interventions or ways to not be callous and unemotional.
1: Um, So it used to be thought that, that these traits were kind of intransigent and that you couldn't, you know, you couldn't change them. Um, But a lot of the really interesting research is coming out now looking at parenting and certain parenting strategies that you can use, particularly and it's not necessarily a strategy, but it's a characteristic, parental warmth. So there's this, there's this body of research that's coming out showing that um, high levels of parental warmth can mitigate some of these negative consequences that are associated with children with callous and emotional traits um, and that going further. So that's something that's, you know, parent-child interaction therapy or other um, early childhood therapies. Take into account um, or could take into account as a treatment target. Uh, so I think that that's just a very fascinating avenue of research that because we used to think, well, there's not much you can do, but I think that that, um, that the parent training, the parent warmth um, is something that's really exploding right now in, in interest in this area. <clears throat> You know, it's so interesting.
0: Uh, I happened to watch uh, this new movie with Olivia Colman. It's called uh, The Lost Daughter. And it's a story about a, I don't want to, I guess nobody cares about the spoiler alert here, but uh, it was a story about a mother who kind of goes through this incredible angst of not wanting two children that she has, she feels tied and and she feels her freedom is gone and she is not a good mother. She's convinced that she doesn't have the warmth and uh, ability to care and express uh, the incredible nurturing that she's supposed to do. And so it's shown in a flashback ways, but I was just thinking uh, it was a, really, there were so many moments that uh, she was so incredibly insensitive to her kids and and every time that the children were getting drawn to the mom for affection and she wouldn't give it and and it and then it makes reference that that she was a product of the kind of parenting she she received and so she didn't know any better and she doesn't know any better and i was just very appalling because typically we see this i don't know if i'm showing my gender bias here but you would think men would possess this uh, this quality than women would so is that true that we would see a gender difference in the callous and unemotional or is this socializing of gender
1: uh, well there is there is a gender difference there, but it tends to be because well we think more boys show aggression outwardly than girls do, so they tend to be referred. To clinics more, they tend to be more mm-hmm. diagnosed with oh. conduct disorder. So it could be a result of a referral bias or the or an assessment bias in the way that we assess conduct problems. Um, for example, girls tend to prefer relational aggression. So there, you know, there's a gender difference there. But when you and it's very harmful, but when you're looking at diagnosing conduct disorder that's not part of the criteria. So you wouldn't necessarily capture, um, a girl with severe conduct problems if you're measuring her using the criteria that were made for boys. And so I think there, you know, the gender difference has a qualifier because it's, it's, it could have other methodological factors that are, you know, kind of driving that, um, and it, and it is, again, boys, are, boys aggression tends to be more, more overt, more physical and, and outwardly shown and girls tends to be more hidden and maybe covert. And so they wouldn't come to the attention of parents and teachers as much. Wow. So last series of questions
0: I wanted to talk about. One of your, uh, research interests and a lot of work you've done is girls and how they behave, uh, and, uh, what their um, middle school and high school experience, or young adulthood experience, uh, with uh, with this relational aggression, what are we, what are you noticing, and what are the challenges that they are navigating, and is this particularly an aberrant behavior, or is it a response to the pressures that girls feel, which is far different? At that age, than boys do. We know from Jean Twenge's work that you know all the uh, or the suicides uh, in young uh, for 13 to 17 age group is the highest, w- and and social media has impacted the girls the most. So I'm just curious, uh, how are they coping, and is this a reflection of poor coping?
1: I think the the research tends to show that when you ask girls. Uh, how harmful they find these behaviors. Like, so how, how, how much does it bother you if someone spreads a rumor, if someone excludes you from a a party, they tend to report more distress over those behaviors than boys do. Um, And so they do tend to be bothered by it more. And it's also a social strategy that they may also need to develop. So then that, that kind of bully victim thing happens Mm. again. So if it's happening to you, um, you may need to fight back uh, by using those same behaviors. And it tends to be also more effective among girls groups because girls tend to have smaller groups and they have more intimate friendships. And so relational aggression is more effective among intimate friendships than, you know, a group of large, a a large group of boys that plays together or. Oh, wow. Right.
0: That's such a neat distinction. I never thought about it. All the books that you read, you know, particularly one of the favorite, your favorite books that I uh, also read after you kind of mentioned it uh, through our correspondence is Margaret Atwood's book.
1: Yes. The Cat's
0: Eye. And. It makes so much sense now that their relation, like their circle of interactions is with a close group of friends, very few, but the same ones. <laughs> and the interaction pattern is kind of set. Um, well, uh, Monica, thank you so much for an amazing conversation. Before I let my guests go, I always ask them um, what books uh, you have found influential or you have enjoyed that you think our audience will enjoy as well.
1: Well, you just mentioned one of my favorite ones, which um, got me interested in relational aggression, in addition to my experience in high school, which was maybe similar to (laughs) yours. Oh, I forgot to ask you, how was your high school experience? Oh, it it, it had some bad moments. (laughs) Yeah, there there was definitely uh, some mean girls, and they were tormentors. And so when I read that the Margaret Atwood book, Cat's Eye, um, it, it was kind of like, wow, you know, this is this is a thing like it. And then I started reading Nikki Crick's work when I got into graduate school and um, there was a word for it. And so I, I, you know, <laughs> I, was, just, I was enlightened by that. Um, so I love that that book. I love anything by Margaret Atwood, really. Um, another book that I just read with book club for our for some of our students and colleagues here in the psychology department. Was the book "Inflamed"? Uh, Deep oh, really? Medicine. Yeah. So it's "Deep Medicine" and "The Anatomy of Injustice" um, by Maria and Patel. So that was uh, that was a really interesting book that describes how social injustice lives in the body, um, and, and it was just very illuminating to me. So I recommend anyone who's interested in um, social justice issues and how our environment. And the food we eat and where we live um, can impact um, racial disparities and those sorts of issues. I would recommend that book highly. That's beautiful. Thank you. And, you know, we have
0: covered on this podcast the other end of the spectrum of aggression and bullying, this mindfulness and caring and empathy. So I feel like there's a full circle here. You know, we can come from this end. And go to more towards creating empathic uh, and uh, nurturing environments for each other. And uh, one last question: Do do you have any recommendations for us to improve our interpersonal skills um, that can really impact when we are experiencing some un uh, unaddressed hate or just general? Uh, you can see sense some type of aggression, but it's not intense enough to become bothersome. But you know, some friends just have an edge and makes the friendship a little bit hard to bear.
1: Right. I think, um, having that, an awareness of that and being able to distance yourself from it and not internalize it and make it personal about you and realizing that it's a trait that they have. Great. Yeah. That could be one strategy that you use. I think we do tend to personalize things way too much and make it about ourselves. Um, If we can maintain some distance, which is not always easy to do, um, then that that might help with dealing with friends that have those those issues or traits.
0: Such a wise advice. Well, thank you, Monica, for being a guest. Thank you, listeners, for joining us uh, on this wonderful journey. Please, uh, these are important conversations we are having uh, with knowledgeable and incredibly qualified and passionate experts, as you see, uh, with their unique perspective that influences executive function, interpersonal relationships, and mostly uh, creating communities where each of us have kind of taken the temperature of our own behaviors and thinking. So we are a little bit more tempered and self-controlled. So... Uh, I would love some help if uh, you can find a friend or a colleague or a relative. uh, Please share this podcast, such an important topic. And definitely, if you have a moment, uh, leave us a review that helps people to find us easily. And lastly, uh, keep your executive function in check. You know, that's one of the best tools you have in your arsenal to self-reflect and definitely be more strategic and thoughtful in your approach to life. So that's all the time we have. Enjoy your time and see you again. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. To contact your host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive function, visit her website at exquinfinitenowhow.com. That's www.exqinfinitenowhow.com. Tune in next week for another informative episode of Full Prefrontal, hosted by the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath.